This is Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today, for the first of our two Christmas episodes, we are going to be talking about A Child's Christmas in Wales, which is Dylan Thomas's 1952 short story about um, child being a child and Chris- Christmas in Wales, if you were having trouble with that title. Yeah. Not sure I could have gathered that, but <laughs> you never know. Some things have wild ass titles, like a Clockwork Orange. True. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> no, yeah, I anyway. think we can we can wrap it right here. I think that covers it. <laughs> yeah, right, right, bye, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> good for us. Hooray! Yeah. Tristan, why a child's Christmas in Wales? So, as I admitted last year when we did a Christmas Carol, and uh, you should go back and listen to that episode if you haven't. It's it's a lot of fun. I do totally unironically love Christmas, and I admit that this is an embarrassing fact for a big old pinko like myself, but I, I can't help it. Uh, just lots of fond memories of childhood Christmases. Don't worry, not going to slip into the whole mythic time thing or whatever the hell Thomas is doing in this story. Um, but, you know, and I think I made this point last year. Who doesn't love a good solstice holiday? I mean, it's fucking four o'clock and dark outside, which is dumb. It's getting cold. And who doesn't need a great excuse to blaze you know, pretty lights and drink and eat tons of sugar and beef and sausages or whatever floats your boat. <laughs> but I do very much love this particular story, which, yes, is also a childhood memory of mine. Um, there's this 1987 TV movie version that stars Dead Home Elliot. And we used to always watch that on Christmas Eve as kind of a tradition. There's this scene where the main character imagines that his tin soldier Highland army starts moving and doing a cavalry charge at him, which confused the hell out of me when I was six. I was like, wait, why don't my toys do that? That's that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I didn't get that it was animated or you know, like stop motion. Oh. Yeah. Kids are, you know, I mean kids are smart in a lot of ways, but not in others. Uh <laughs> so but rereading it for the pod, there there's a ton of interesting stuff here. Thomas is a fascinating and tragic figure. Also a giant asshole, just have to say that. Mm-hmm. Uh and we'll get into that a bit. There's a lot of stuff here about time and memory, like what happens when you try to re-inhabit a space of childhood in memory as an adult, and honestly, a lot more on stuff like the nation and Wales and Welshness than than I had remembered, which I mean, that seems implicit in the title, but uh, we'll get into why that is kind of surprising. And there's some stuff on class in the city, if you look closely. It's funny as hell at a lot of places, and I think also, you know, probably this isn't uh, news, given who Thomas was, it's it's quite poetic. There's just a lot of poetic devices that I think are really striking to see in a prose work, albeit one that Thomas did, you know, perform, and he, you know, kind of meant to read aloud for recordings and the radio and so forth. So, yeah, I'm amped. Yeah. Well, I have no such heartwarming child's Christmas inside, child's Christmas inside, <laughs> child's Christmas tales. <laughs> As an avowed uh, Christmas hater for su- for some years now. Yes, I believe I believe you you identified very hard with Scrooge in that episode. I, t- I did. I th- I made. T- I You're think a he- Yes, <laughs> I think he has a lot of opinions that are worth exploring. I'll just say that, um, not the bad ones, but you know, uh, how long you can leave food out, for instance. I'm with Scrooge on. <laughs> how many ghosts is it legitimate to see in one night? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Subsisting wholly on a diet of oatmeal, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, the oatmeal I'm I'm with him on. And you know, the he's very eco-friendly with the lights and such. But this year I decided that I'm turning over a new Christmas mistletoe leaf and I'm going to be holiday spirited. I'm going to jingle the bells. I'm going to do it all. 
And I do have some fun Christmas memories, although they're not childhood necessarily. So my dad got like a legit Santa suit when I was 16 or 17. So like (laughs) way past the point where like it's a funny thing to be like Like a little kid. Yeah. Yeah. But he would just wear it around to be hilarious and to embarrass his teenage daughters. So it was great. <laughs> yeah, and the other tr- Christmas tradition that went along with the Santa suit was listening to Jimmy Buffett's Christmas album, Christmas Dope. Island. Dope. Yep. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, some real bangers on that one. Check it out for sure. And I don't know if I talked about this last holiday season, but in college, we had a wonderful tradition known as Dickmas. It's just <laughs> what it sounds like is a dick themed holiday party. And it's where I learned to make the only food that I know how to make, which is a uh, cake shaped like a dick. And you know how to um, make hamburger helper. I I don't know if we I don't know if we can call that making anything. But yes, thank you for the thank you for the thank you for that charitable uh, gloss on putting to on assembling the hamburger helper. I appreciate it. I just really jealous of Dickmas and. I'm now feeling soft and mushy inside because I'm sad that I never went to Dickmas. <laughs> no, Dick Dickmas is wonderful. Um, I refuse to do Zoom Dickmas, but I like to fly out to Chicago and, and make a Christmas dick cake that you'll never forget. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it would be my I, honor. <laughs> host, uh, host for the holiday Dickmas party in my hotel room. We're going to fuck up the place. But there will be dick cake dick cake more dick cakes in in my life and yours i make them for birthdays too upon request and um one one year for a friend's birthday uh, her boyfriend was jealous of the dick cake <laughs> for her <laughs> for her for uh, why i don't i don't know but what i did learn from this and what i can say for sure is that if you want to know whether to dump someone um one good way to find out is if they get like sexually jealous about a, a, a a cake um of any of any kind yeah of any yeah. kind we're not doing that shit good good advice good advice yeah no but i never read any dylan thomas before was excited to do that and uh this did this did not disappoint and i also from my my aunt and uncle i got some cool uh dylan thomas bios that have neat groovy covers from the 70s one of which was bought because the author had the same last name as my uncle and so they had like a real (laughs) sweetie pie email exchange about how much he liked the book and then the guy wrote back yeah it was really cute and they had this conversation about like playing welsh footy on the the game where you do the on the field and you kick the ball and it's cute Uh, yes cricket (laughs) <laughs> yeah, rugby, i think it's called rugby yeah. is it rugby is it what do we have we have games balls some have sticks happy holidays everyone mm-hmm. <laughs> it's us the people who know what we're talking about the sports knowers have logged on to podcast well okay so like katie i am an affirmed christmas loather I actually suspect like that this is a partially like a child of divorce thing, which seems like one of on average 74 personality defects that comes with being a child of divorce. <laughs> I say this because like my in-laws and my husband and my brother-in-law all seem to like be perfectly happy with Christmas. And I'm like, where, why are none of you like crying or trying <laughs> yes. to like watch nirvana concert videos instead of watching 
Scrooge. I don't know. Like, why are you not trying to get out of this? None of you have headphones on. None of you are hiding in the bathroom. None of you are weirdly flustered and upset. What's wrong with you? Zero people seem to have taken this attitude whenever I've been to Christmas at their house. And it really fucks me up that they seem fine with it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think partially why I loved it so much was like, Thanksgiving was the holiday where you would see extended family, and that that sucks, right? Like, I mean, no, oh, yeah. no one likes that. Although, I mean, hey, you, <laughs> I know some people have very cool aunts and uncles, but Christmas was always much more just like hanging out with kind of immediate family and, you know, oh. eating way too much. So, you know what I mean? So, like, I feel like you could do Christmas wrong for sure, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I am confident that always we did it were wrong. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, to the degree that, like, I have maybe kept company in the past with the kind of assholes who point out that Jesus was, in fact, born during the summer. <laughs> yeah, okay. Those are real people. They really exist. And that's a good follow-up on the Screw Tape Letters episode in which we are warned not to think that there was a historical Jesus. Never historicize Frederick Jameson. Never historicize. That's what we learned. It's very important. And then last year I had a one month old, which I so like I have almost no memory of it because that's what having a tiny baby is like. But I'm happy that this year I like there are only a couple benefits of quarantine, but one of them is that you are under no pressure to do much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just gonna like sit on the couch and watch The Bachelor in Paradise or whatever and just pretend it's a different day. Um <laughs> although I love Christmas music, so in that sense, I'm getting into the spirit. There's a lot of great Christmas music out there. See, that is that is yeah. interesting to me. I feel like most Christmas haters, it's a whole package. And I, I got to be honest with you, there's a lot of Christmas music I think sucks as a Christmas lover. But uh, yeah. No, well, Megan has clearly heard Jimmy Buffett's Christmas Island. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm surprised I don't know that, frankly. but I never have, but now I'm going to, as soon as we stop recording, I'm going to be like, the Jimmy, where is Mr. Jimmy Buffett? I'm not putting it on my Spotify for fear of fucking it up forever. No, and I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna get some angry texts later. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like Willie Nelson's Christmas album is. There are very good Christmas records. Is my point. There are also bad ones. Also, anybody who has known me more than 45 seconds knows I love Mariah Carey and Christmas with Mariah Carey. Mm, yeah, amazing. And you know, I mean, the like I'll say the the Pogues and the Ramones both have good Christmas songs for sure. Yes, <laughs> you know? like, yes. just because the Ramones is the same song forty five times doesn't matter. <laughs> no, that's why the Ramones are great. That's why they're the Ramones. <laughs> Execute flawlessly, and you only have to do it one time. Exactly. <laughs> uh, anyway, so like when I was a kid, my uncle actually had a recording of this on lp which is like it's a very sweet recording like for real it's he's a great reader and yeah so it's like a sweet story i'm a big fan of food content and this story has some quality food content and not in a nathaniel hawthorne i hate food or i hate people who eat food or like whatever his attitude to food is yeah yeah there are also like strange kinds of wine in this mm-hmm. barley corn wine or like parsnip, yeah, parsnip, parsnip wine. wine or whatever the fuck yeah. you make up that is just garden plants or whatever, and then you ferment them. So that's interesting. I'd like to have a child's Christmas in Wales tasting party. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and of course, I love the Welsh because they talk like their mouths are full of wood chips. <laughs> I have butchered many accents of the British Isles on this show. I will not be attempting that one. <laughs> it's the rare. It's the, I mean, like, I understand that they're speaking English, but I do have to have this closed captioning. It's completely indecipherable to me. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's worse than the Scots, and I know, but it's it's worse. <laughs> there are towns in Scotland with vowels in that. Yeah, it is true. Yeah, that yeah, that's uh, they're not they don't they don't like the the, the vowels in, in Welsh. Yeah, no, they do not. Yeah. Why is a vowel sometimes? <laughs> <laughs> is W and C though? Because. They have- <laughs> Yeah, right. Uh, it's and N, N seems to come up an awful lot. Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. yeah they can all be vowels. They yeah. can. The tail of the Y pulls the rest in. So today we are talking about the nation Wales Welshness. We're talking about temporality, about childhood, and about space. So Tristan, will you give us the summary of this? Absolutely. Um, and just fair warning, I'm gonna. This is gonna sound like a, a way too into it Star Wars fan dorking out about like, well, there was the in the original the lightsaber at one scene you could see the plastic pipe, but like I, <laughs> I there's a there's an actual like interpretive purpose to that. So I promise, just bear with me. It's our show. Do what you like. Who who's gonna? I mean, go sure. ahead. And well, actually, uh, shut up, guys. <laughs> and you can see you can see the pipe on that lightsaber. So you know, I mean, it's it's true. You can. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's what I. I I have no idea what either you're talking about, but okay. (laughs) But anyway, so... Okay, so A Child's Christmas in Wales is written in an autobiographical style, although it's largely fictionalized, and I think we're supposed to gather that it's fictionalized as we read. Like, I don't think it's a it's meant as that serious of a pretense. It's rich in detail, but all of the details are generalizable. So, for instance... We know Dylan Thomas grew up in Swansea, which is an important industrial city in the south of Wales. But the story just references, quote, the sea town corner now and out of all sound except the distant speaking of the voices I sometimes hear a moment before sleep. So like the whole thing is infused with this dreamlike quality, which produces both a kind of specificity and a kind of universality, as in, you know, Thomas is recounting childhood memories, but ones that anyone might have access to, although I think with some interesting limitations that we'll probably talk about. So you've already like foregrounded its nostalgia, which I think is Christmas theme number one. Yes, absolutely. Although, and I mean, I think I think that this we'll get into this today. Rereading this, like, applied sort of like scholarly uh, interpretive tools to it, it, it's actually I think a lot more ambivalent about the nostalgia than certainly my memory of it is, or I think what the general like impression of, of this story is is kind of popularly. But it's certainly there and is, is, is a big theme. I mean, I think it, what I mean too is that it's like also felt to be there because it's a Christmas thing, right? So it's like a Christmas affect. Absolutely. Okay, so the time in which the story is set is similarly a bit amorphous or ambiguous. So Thomas, the historical Dylan Thomas, was born in 1914. So if we imagine the perspective he's describing as a child of like eight or 10, that's put to sometime in the 1920s. And we, we get a few clues to the to that effect. Like, so for instance, there's this one scene that the boys are making a, a call from a telephone box. Like, there's not a telephone in the house, but they have to go outside to use one. Although at this decidedly middle-class house is still using gas lamps, so we know it's probably not much later than the 1920s. 
It seems to be, again, to the 1920s idea, it seems to be a time of some prosperity, like there's no reference to anything like the Depression. There's also no mention of the First World War, uh, which means either we're out in the 19-teens, or, and this is why I'm going so far this down this rabbit hole, Thomas's narrator is re-inhabiting a child's perspective from within the perspective of an adult. So like, he's kind of like, what wouldn't a child be aware of? Like, oh, the world historical, right? So, so I mean, like, maybe that means it's not wartime, or maybe that means it's, it's a child in this kind of, in this general way that's remembering this. And I think that tension works on, on kind of a, a couple of, of fronts and, and produces some interesting fractures. But like, okay, so why I said a while ago that Thomas is imagining something like mythic time, here's this amazing and really beautiful quote at the very beginning of the, of the story. I can never remember whether it snowed for six days and six nights when I was 12 or whether it snowed for 12 days and 12 nights when I was six. All the Christmases rolled down toward the two-tongued sea like a cold and headlong moon bundling down the sky that was our street. And they stop at the rim of the ice-edged fish-freezing waves and I plunge my hands in the snow and bring out whatever I can find. In goes my hand into that wool-white bell-tongued ball of holidays resting at the rim of the carol-singing sea and out comes Mrs. Prothero and the fireman. Anyone else hearing the Odyssey? Because I, I am. <laughs> like, I'm hearing Dune oh. when he puts the in the box. <laughs> you're hearing what? Dune when he puts sand in the box. <laughs> oh, yeah. With the, the, yeah, the Betty Jesuit box. Yeah. Uh, sure. All yeah. I'm hearing is that you have both nailed this in the epic genre, and I'm going with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and actually, uh, my, uh, my, my wife is a classicist. Uh, she tells me that, that it, this is actually a thing. It's called a pillion, which is reducing sort of an epic scale to the scale of one day. And I'm positive Thomas knew exactly <laughs> that that's what he was doing. Almost like he's a poet or something, right? You know? <laughs> but, and, and, and I think that, you know, that w- one reason why I was hearing a Homer, the way like the two-tongued sea, like the bell-tongued, and, and like the carol singing C. C keeps coming back as this like verbal clue, but like slightly modified, which like that is epic poetry technology mm-hmm. right there. You know, that's that's straight out of Homer. But anyway, we'll, I'm sh- we'll come back to that. Like the mythic time and like kind of the epic is in present in some way here. Now, now I'm just thinking about like technology, like we call it Google Homer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, that's one of those words that literary critics love using. It's a little obnoxious, but I do it. I like it. So anyway, yeah, Mrs. Prothero. So the story is composed of these short vignettes that take us through one Christmas centering on the house of the unnamed narrator. You know, maybe Dylan Thomas, maybe not. You know, it's certainly, you know, not uh, specified, I think, meant to be ambiguous. So first vignette is Mrs. Prothero and those firemen. So the narrator and his his friend, Jim Prothero, are engaging in the mildly or nah, flat-out psychopathic pastime of finding cats to throw snowballs at on Christmas Eve, as Jim and the narrator pretend they are, quote, fur-capped moccasin trappers from Hudson Bay off of Mumbles Road, which is kind of funny, but also disturbing. So, so they're throwing their snowballs at these neighborhood cats, and they hear Mrs. Prothero shouting about a fire in the house. Her husband has set his chair on fire somehow, I think, you know, smoking accident is basically i think what's implied or a smoking plus drinking accident yeah. <laughs> yes go, go hand in hand so now being 10 years old this is obviously the best thing ever uh they run at the house they you know try to help by throwing their snowballs at the fire uh mrs prothero sends them outside to call the fire brigade for the telephone box jim thinks they should call ernie jenkins too because quote he likes fires and i bet he does the little psychopath you know? <laughs> So you play with fire, you will wet the bed, young man, right? Oh, God. 
Uh, no, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> no, correlation causation. So uh, Mr. Prothero thinks the fire brigade won't be there quote, because, quote, it's Christmas, which is just an amazing line, right? Yeah. So we have to call the dark triad child. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, of course the fire brigade there since they're the fucking fire brigade and it's, that's what you know uh they they, they and, and christmas is a notorious uh holiday for house fires they blast water all over the parlor and uh you know and, and this is the point at which jim's ad appears and gives us maybe the best line in the entire story so quote quoting directly she looked at the three tall firemen and their shining helmets standing among the smoke and cinders and dissolving snowballs and she said would you like anything to read <laughs> As I said, just utterly amazing. And I will say the 1987 uh, TV movie version, just that it is like an absolutely hysterical scene. Like I, I just rewatched it. It's amazing. Okay. Uh, I'll be briefer about the rest of the vignettes uh, because I think that one is pretty typical of their general form and function. So we move from Christmas Eve to Christmas Day proper. The narrator's house is filled with extended family. Quote, there are always uncles at Christmas, the same uncles. Like, so again, they, which is kind of a bird on uncles, you know, like, but, but I think also part of that sort of like generalizing impulse that, that the narrative has. At one point, the narrator gets this young interlocutor who's grilling about how Christmas used to be different back in my day. And like, you know, we learned about useful presents, which, you know, think Randy from A Christmas Story, if you remember that scene when the, the I young- I believe woman, Katie has noted that she has not seen that movie. Which I don't know how you have managed to avoid it. I mean, honestly. I didn't see it until I was like 28. Okay. I simply refuse. I hear all manner of awful and gruesome things happen to people's eyes and tongues, and it sounds like <laughs> hostile, and I will not be watching it. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, you're not that far off. Uh, this would certainly the, the younger brother gets wrapped in all these in like so many clothes by his mom on the way to school that he can't move his arms. <laughs> um, and, and there's actually a scene very similar to that in, in, in uh, Child's Christmas in Wales. So that's useful presents. Much better, of course, are useless presents, which toys. So one thing he gets are some candy cigarettes that he pretends to smoke until an old lady yells at him, which was the point of him standing outside doing that, see if he could could fool, fool, fool someone, an adult, into yelling at him and in addition to uncles there are also aunts including auntie hannah uh who likes port and rum and her tea and parsnip wine and the sauce generally and seems kind of like a good time i have to say yeah. <laughs> she, she, cool. she also she sings and so she's very very uh, very into singing at the end of it which seems to fit with her the other uh, characterizations we get of her i didn't have eggnog the real kind until like three years ago and i'm i'm gonna just put in a plug for the real eggnog if you know anyone in your family who was willing to go through all the bullshit of it it's delicious i don't know that i've had it and i generally i kind of have the idea that i hate eggnog so maybe i like to i need to have the real kind right but are you only familiar with the kind out of a carton because that stuff is nauseating that's what i mean so that is what i'm only familiar with so maybe i need to to try real stuff yeah what's a real what is a is just you make it you milk the cow yourself yeah, you milk the cow yourself. <laughs> no. you, get an e- you get an e- you get a nog chicken to lay you, an egg. You, you milk the chicken yourself. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's made with like part of it is egg yolks and sugar, and it's like a custard, and then you mix it with the egg whites, so it gets all fluffy. And if you're my dad, you make it with rum and bourbon, mm-hmm. yeah. and yeah. it's delicious, and it's full of like whole cream 
Yeah, I mean, I would, I would try that for sure. I didn't think that it would be good, and it's very good. It sounds delicious, and like my my tummy would be so mad. Oh yeah, <laughs> there's no human being who has the lactose tolerance to go for this. But like, it's Christmas. You're going to be eating all kinds of wild things anyway. <laughs> yeah, so let's subsist on sugar and fat and alcohol for yep. <laughs> several days. Yeah, perfect. Okay, so inside the house is this sort of buoyant scene of like plenty. It's all very jovial, and the humor is all pretty good natured. Like even the mild dunk, you know, and uncles. It's it's all very kind of like in, in that vein. Outside, I do think is a bit different. So the boys who are obviously bored as shit, hanging out with relatives all day. So like at various points, they get to go out and, and play in the town. And we get a lot of children's fantasies that range from the funny to the weird to the kind of disturbing, I think. Like, I I did think as a child, and I still sort of do. And I think plus the moments at which the real kind of butts up against the fantasy. So, for instance, this is kind of late in the story, but at night they go caroling to this darkened house where they think they hear this sad, lonely voice joining them, uh, and they freak the shit out. Now, I think partially this evokes that weird-ass Victorian tradition that I think we talked about in the Christmas Carol episode of telling ghost stories on Christmas, which now you're like, wait, what? That, that was a thing at some point? Better holiday to me now. <laughs> Although, you know, I mean, if, if you see like Jack Frost and those fucking, uh, was that, there, there was like a slew of like Christmas time horror movies that came out in like the late 90s and early 2000s. I think most of them were quite bad. <laughs> but, the, um, the Santa Claus with Tim Allen was the scariest one. <laughs> that I ever saw. Tim Tim Allen, yes, a- accidental Marxist, right? <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot he was an accidental leftist. <laughs> yeah, yeah like Karl Marx, Wikipedia, like it's like absolutely, sir, I will do that. Um, I think people really like the the um, original Black Christmas from the seventies. I don't think I've seen it. I mean, mm-hmm. I haven't either. I'll have to go back and you know. I don't mind watching all kinds of movies. I want to watch Christmas movies. I don't give a shit. It's it's not the Christmas cultural materials that bother me. It's the forcible joy. Yeah, <laughs> that's. I mean, that's fair. And I, I was. I mean, my love of Christmas is quite out of character for me because I'm generally, you know, kind of a you know sarcastic commie asshole. But, but uh, like, I don't know. There's there's something about it, man. I really think that we all have our earnest yeah i know I, attachments and that that's perfectly fine yeah i will take that yes <laughs> but uh <laughs> but but so yeah so we have the ghost house kind of thing which is like wow this is kind of it sort of feels a little bit out of nowhere there's this other scene that i mean i i recall very distinctly so the narrator is he's just watching the street as he's running along and he sees quote Two hale young men with big pipes blazing, no overcoats and windblown scarfs, would trudge unspeaking down to the forlorn sea to work up an appetite, to blow away the fumes, who knows, to walk into the waves until nothing of them was left but the two curling smoke clouds of their inextinguishable briars. You know, so I, I take that as just kind of a child's funny imagination about like a mundane street scene, which then just goes off into these kind of wild directions. But I will say, like, that seed scared the shit out of me when I was a kid because I think it was just so like, wait, wait, they walked into the sea. Like, what are, what happened? This is just so, <laughs> so weird. Um, And it, I, I have to say, reading it today, I was like, yeah, I this is a strikingly odd kind of thing that he's imagining. And I, I'm curious, like what you guys think think it's doing there it's new epic time it reads like ulysses to me yeah well i think that's it right i mean it's it's all you can almost like something like poseidon's minions or something going back to the sea or the god himself like it it does feel out like out of epic 
which imbues it with a certain kind of supernaturalness that is kind of like, I don't know if I want to say it's like up against the sublime, but it's certainly that sort of like uh, the, unca- the the weird or the, the, the out of yeah. the out of uh, the out of the, the unreal or something like well, that. Well, there's literally that scene in Ulysses where Stephen like goes down to the sea to be morose. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Steve, yeah, Stephen, yeah, no, Stephen Daedalus, you're right. At this, I mean, Stephen yeah. goes everywhere to film Moreau, so that's not like special, but and, it's and a I great w- scene. Yeah, and I mean, you know what? Like, uh, and now I hadn't thought Ulysses specifically. Uh, you know, I mean, I was, I was thinking the Odyssey, not not Joyce, but I would not be at all surprised if that was not exactly the reference that Thomas had in mind as he wrote that. Yeah. So anyway, so it's it's just it's it's pretty striking. And then I I think probably the most troubling outside scene is when the kids quote returned home through the poor streets where only a few children fumbled with bare red fingers in the wheel rutted snow and cat called after us their voice is fading away as we trudged uphill. So like there's a notable tension point there in the general nostalgia for an idealized domesticity and youth and this kind of placid sort of petty bourgeois front. Although I will say that line is all there is to that aspect. Thomas really doesn't stay with the thought. And we do end up very much back in the nostalgia. And I'll just read the, the end of the book. Looking through my uh, my bedroom window out into the moonlight and the unending smoke-colored snow, I could see the lights in the windows of all the other houses on our hill and hear the music rising from them up the long, steadily falling night. I turned the gas down. I got into bed. I said some words to the close and holy darkness, and then I slept. So, the end. <laughs> Very touching. I mean, it, it, it comes back very deliberately into the nostalgia but I mentioned those scenes just because, like, I do feel like there's fracture points within it. And it's either, like, the sort of historical, the real world that's like, yeah, hey, you know, we can't f- we can't fully keep that at bay as we're kind of indulging this fantasy. But I also think, too, just like what, you know, is uh, some skepticism or complexity around what it is that the nostalgia is after in the first place, I think, you know? I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, we have to talk about that more because it's it's – yeah, it's like a it's a Christmas affect, but it's also like he handles it differently. For sure. Um, also, I mean, I, I, I quoted it at some length from it. I also just, I mean, the language is beautiful. <laughs> like it really is. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is, and it is, it is definitely poetic prose. Like you could see someone deploying the techniques of poetry to kind of to do this sort of prose work for sure. And that's also how he leads us sort of down some of those darker paths. I think, right? Is yes, like yeah. by using particular language forms to do that. Yes, a hundred percent entirely. Yeah, I think we'll talk about this later too. But like some of the epic stuff ties into the childhood stuff nicely because that is how you how how one might depict or recall something through the lens of childhood is to map it on to those anything that's outside of the realm of your ordinary experience or like is disturbing or something. Mm-hmm. You yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, tell us about Dylan Thomas. Okay, yeah. His <laughs> so, name is not something completely wild and off the wall and seems to have some vowels in it. Yes. Uh, yeah, right. I, I'll get into that. Very, very, uh, well, it's a well, yeah, I mean, it is a, it's a Welsh name, which is kind of interesting given his dad. I'll talk about that in a second. So yeah, if you know anything about Dylan Thomas, you know he was one of the UK's and, and Wales's certainly most famous 20th century poets. And you also probably know that he was a notorious alcoholic. And honestly, his personal- It's really a rare quality in a poet. <laughs> yeah, no, on, completely unheard of, particularly in his era, I would say, right? Like Thomas is a little bit younger than the people we typically think of as modernists, although he is within, he's thought of as being within that school. But like, yeah, the 20s and 30s, uh, writers, poets, yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was a fairly common thing. I mean, I would 
would say later, you know, like through the fifties and sixties, Jack yeah. Kerouac and yeah. uh, Black Mountain, some of those people, and probably <laughs> earlier. And- <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not a, yeah, it's a, it's a fairly common uh, problem among among writers, uh, tra- trans historical problem. Yeah, poets in particular, though, like they, they, mm-hmm, they yeah. love it. <laughs> Well, you know, you gotta gotta do something to cut through the uh, your attachments to like the the prosaic world to you know get get at the the the, the yeah the the muse comes to you in a studio. I love form and I yeah. love whiskey and those are the things I like. You're you're just not going to be able to talk to the, the 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 muses if you are sober. Um, I understand. <laughs> But I think I have to mention that part because honestly, like uh, his his personal and public life were such a just spectacular mess that that might even be more famous than the fact that he was this famous poet, right? <laughs> like um, certainly at the time, I mean, he, he was it, he was kind of the subject of a lot of very sort of like lurid press stories about like, oh my god, what's Dylan Thomas up to now? And it's, I mean, you know, I I don't also don't really want to gawk at this because it is quite sad uh he he died at 39 of alcohol poisoning in our age our age yeah he yeah he was our age and he died of alcohol poisoning in new york city and like this is after his drinking had been getting wilder and wilder for years uh like there are all these crazy and very well publicized stories of his really tumultuous relationship with his wife he had tons of affairs just like a string of increasingly erratic behavior like he would blow off recording sessions. Like he, he did a lot of radio work and, you know, kind of recording his poetry on records, just kind of going AWOL all the time. Um, and actually there's a bit of the drunken stupor around a child's Christmas in Wales in the version we have it now. So in 1952, he's on one of his kind of trips slash benders to New York. And he was approached by uh, Barbara Holdridge and Marianne Roney, who were in the process of starting Cadman records with the idea of they were going to get all these famous authors to read their writing and get it down on, vinyl which which they did and that, that i think that that uh, company is still around as part of i think harper but anyway uh and you know thomas said yeah that's great uh promptly missed the first recording and at the makeup session he sort of stumbles in with only a couple of short poems and they're like dude this is half a record man and so he's like uh shit well, I wrote this Christmas story for Harper's Bazaar a couple years ago, and they just happened to have it lied around. So that's how A Child's Christmas in audio form first happened. <laughs> um, Damn. But I mean, it's still great. No, it is. I mean, and it, it became, it was quite a hit, very, and very kind of famous. Um, and then just, there's a story of him showing up at a friend's dinner party and he goes to the guy's bedroom and puts on his clothes, the, like the host clothes, and then just leaves with them. Uh, he missed his best friend's wedding, like, cause he got lost on the bus on the way there and he was the best man for that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's like, it, yeah. Uh, as I said, I mean, it's like the, 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 these were publicized. It's like, Oh my God, like what's going to happen next. But then like knowing how it ends, it's like, it takes on a much kind of, you know, different character, I guess. Um, but yeah. And, and I would say if, if you want to read more on Dilla Thomas and all the, the lurid details, there are a couple of well-regarded biographies and I'm, I'm getting most of mine from Andrew, uh, Lysett's, uh, 2003 one. I think so. This is almost certainly apocryphal, but the story is that like, he walked into his girlfriend's apartment after the night that he died and he said, I've had 18 straight whiskeys and I think that's a record. Yeah, that's actually in the 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 Lysid biography. Um and it but it it said that like apparently they're they're like kind of forensics around it. They interviewed the bartender. He's like, now he had like a couple of full glasses of whiskey, but it was it was yeah. 
But then how could he die of alcohol poisoning from just a couple? I mean, he had kind of been drunk so long first, you know, but but, I mean, amazingly, apparently when they did an autopsy, his like liver was in like good shape. It's, it's very anyway, but yeah, he like, he was, and, and also, I mean, there's kind of rumors of like drug use too and stuff like, I think just spiraling further and further out of control and over a very sustained period of time. But anyway, so I like I mentioned all of that for a couple reasons. I mean, one, I think it's unavoidable when you talk about Thomas. But you know, I think a, a Child's Christmas in Wales is so wistful and, and nostalgic, and at least winking. It has like this winking pretense of autobiography that the function of nostalgia becomes really interesting and probably also kind of tragic to think about when we do know this about what Thomas's adult life was like. I'd probably shy, shy away from that sort of analysis in like a formal paper, you know, the biographical fallacy and all that bullshit. But you know, fuck it, this is a podcast and I'm only a fan right now. And I actually do think it raises some important analytic questions about you know how we want to read the short story. But uh, one other facet of Thomas's background to mention, so his grandparents' generation were working class Welsh, original agricultural laborers uh, who had moved to Swansea as this kind of booming industrial center in the 19th century. And by his parents' generation, the family was pretty solidly petty bourgeois. So they lived in this newly built middle class neighborhood. His dad, DJ, uh, was the local schoolmaster. And while his family were Welsh speakers in the recent past, as was the majority of Wales uh, still in, in 1914, Thomas himself never learned the language. And in fact, his dad was kind of adamantly opposed to learning Welsh and to Welsh literature as an idea. Like he was very into that kind of anglicizing sort of colonialist pro- project as, as sort of one of upper mobility. But, uh, you know, and, and, and so and as such, like Thomas is now viewed as this kind of Welsh literary icon. But that was kind of less true in his day. Like, he was much more viewed as like a British literary icon and that sort of, you know, we've talked about this before, like Brit British as a concept that like, you know, transcends like English, Welsh, Scottish, Northern Irish identities. He, he was, was like assimilated? Was that? Yeah, that like, he, you know, he's part of like the, the literature of Britain, not the kind of, you know, more specific literature of Wales, right? Like that he's, okay. uh, but English literature too, right? Not like a sort of Welsh national kind of canon, if that makes sense. So, yeah, but uh, so he was associated with modernism and British modernism specifically, as I said, Uh, although also like kind of notable romantic sympathies, um, which don't entirely square with that school. Megan, you can yell at me if that's wrong. Um, (laughs) Oh, I mean, he seems much more like a romanticist. I mean, like a romantic poet to me, like as a reader, he certainly doesn't do those crazy. He doesn't do that sort of like avant-garde. He's not an avant-garde poet at all. And so that's like, maybe, I mean, I'm, I have some pretty limited understanding of modernist poetry because yeah. in the US, it's really so focused on short fiction and the novel, but you could never mistake Dylan Thomas and Gertrude Stein. Yeah, no, sure. Uh, or like Thomas and Auden or something like that either. Right. right? Like, yeah, you would know more and that sounds right to me. <laughs> well, I don't know very much, but I, he does seem, he does seem to have sort of some like Keatsy yeah. attachments. Absolutely, uh, which I think again, kind of with the biography or amplify with the kind of you know dying. Although he, you know, he, he yeah. died older certainly than Keats did, but yeah, but not old, Jesus. No, not old, not old. But I think wasn't Keats like twenty one or something like that? But yeah, he was super, super um, young. very young, um, twenty five. I remember 
doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, something like that. But anyway, yeah, uh, but actually, so I, I said that his dad sort of hated Welsh literature. He did actually choose the name Dylan from this kind of ancient Welsh text, like from the Middle Ages, although the family always pronounced it Dylan and not the Welsh way, which would apparently be Dullen. But in any case, I think that sort of ambiguous relationship with Welshness also gives us some things to think about here. Since the story is rooted in this industrial, modern, petty bourgeois and very anglicized urban space, but does have some of these kind of fleeting references to like older pre-English history and myth and identity around the margin. So yeah, anyway. So like, tell us about that. Cause I just, that's a little outside of my purview when you talk about the nation, like the form. Well, one, I mean, I do think that like, it is implicit in the kind of like presence of mythic time and those sort of like Homeric illusions that we've talked to talked about a little bit. But I think even on the first page, there is in the, in the description of, of the sea, there is some interesting suggestions about that. So for instance, all the Christmases roll down toward the two tongued sea and two tongued. Okay. So, well, I mean, like actually we could close read that a little bit. So uh, like Swansea and, and specifically, I think the neighborhood Thomas grew up in is kind of like on a peninsula. So, okay, it's got two tongues, but also, you know, the water's off Wales go into the Irish sea. So we can think of Irish and English, but also two tongued English and Welsh as both means, but you know, and it's just like, I, like when I read that, I was like, wait, this actually feels like it's probably an intentionally deep reference there that you could kind of just glance over. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about this specifically, but I think that like when he wanders through the poor neighborhood, I mean, so like even to this day, it is a bit like uh, uh, first language is a big kind of class demarcator in Wales. Like Welsh is taught in schools again, and it is kind of emergent sort of pro like kind of national identity and anti like kind of UK colonialism type thing to, to be a Welsh speaker, but it is still very class inflected. Like, I mean, you know, the, the sort of like working class and so kind of in the countryside is much more Welsh speaking versus, you know, the, the professional classes are, you know, tend to be English speakers as the, as the first language. And, and I did think that that like, so as the, the, uh, I mean, there's almost no contact between uh, the narrator and his friends and the poor children, like their cat calling after them. I almost wonder too, like, I mean, are they even speaking the same language? I think that might be a, an interesting suggestion there that it's like one of the reasons they don't stay to linger is that there are like multiple barriers, one of which is class, but others as well between them. Um, and so it, it kind of tries to keep that stuff off to the margins, but I also think it wants to at least flag it and suggest it in some interesting places. Yeah, I was thinking too about like other spots where we get that. And I, I don't have like a great analog to that one. Yeah. You know, I think I think this is short story, so I think you got the best one. Uh, yeah, no, I I I know. I yeah. Well, I mean, I think like one way we might think about a topic related to this, but where there probably opens up more in this specific story is the function of time, right? I've said like mythic time is present, but I also feel like maybe questions of the nation or questions of class, we get to something more like historical time, which sort of troubles that kind of Because I mean, the thing about like mythic time is like one, it's like magical. It has this kind of spiritual valence to it, the unreal, but also that it's not historical, right? And it's, it's sort of generalizable, right? Like, I mean, it's, I think there's a pretense of like a sort of like, 
a common kind of humanism that it can evoke that in a way that like historical time might trouble with the kind of like, you know, fractures and tensions of history. And I think like the story wants to exist in mythic time, but I also think that it wants to play in some interesting ways when the mythic butts up against the real or when maybe the real is less kind of escapable in that way than what, what mythic is. But also I think like the whole idea of the national myth is like a huge concept too, you know? So I, anyway, I like, I, I think that what the story is doing with time itself and history to the extent it is, is, is certainly worth talking about. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think that part that you read from at the beginning where he talks about it, I don't know if it was six, 12 Christmas, I was on a six or six, mm-hmm. 12 dozen, whatever Baker's dozen <laughs> number. Yeah. There's a way of um, like, I don't know. There's a way that works for me where it's like mythic time. The idea of mythic time enable like opens up all of these beautiful prose possibilities and it also papers over the limitations of childhood memory and shit like mm-hmm. like it lets him get away with stuff it lets him have more fun and fuck around and also flag that he's a kid and that uh well it helps him it enables him to do the sort of structural stuff that you were talking about Tristan with respect to the like vignette structure mm-hmm. that it feels like kid time in the sense that it's i mean and maybe most memories operate this way like i don't fucking know i'm not a neurologist but like you know it it allows him to do micro narrative mm-hmm. right have something like mythic time does that so so you get these like narrow scenes yeah so another thing like is this actually supposed to take place over one day or like, is it, is it like a day assembled in the map? Right. Cause I mean like, Oh, there were always uncles at Christmas. Right. And shit like that. It's like this scene is repeated year after year after year. And like the changes with it are slow. Right. It's sort of like, in his memory, he and, and that's part of the, con- the the confusion you were pointing us back to, Katie, about the six days, twelve days thing. When you think back to like childhood, who the fuck knows what happened when some when we were eight versus nine versus ten? You know, I mean, it's it's like a lot of like kind of early childhood memories. They do kind of blend together, and we think of them as one thing. But like, I mean, a lot of times you'll have memories that are separated by years when you actually press on to them into them. But like, th- that's not the way you experience them in memory. That's just like childhood as this as this kind of. Uh, uh, you know, thing. Totally. I mean, I had taken it as in, in that it's the sort of like generality, right? So it's like, is it a given day? Maybe, maybe not, because it's like speaking to a series of happenings that might line up with a different Christmas, right? Like it's speaking of Christmas as a sort of temporal location that might be filled up with various different kinds of narratives that like we get some of here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Right. So uncles are like a continuity. So we get like, here are the versions of uncles. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. It's got to be some weird kind of wine. So here's like parsnip wine and here's this <laughs> other kind of weird wine and then rum. Yeah. And- yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it is a like they're like no no one's just like drinking whiskey out of the flask, right? Like it's very like poor to parsnip. Well, they, these very I don't know, like kind of uh, uh like holiday CB type things. You're like sneaky rum into the tea because it's oh because like this isn't a line. It's like she she poured rum in her tea because after all, Christmas only happens once a year, right? right. <laughs> I, there's this like funny thing that I don't know. My, okay, Tristan, you're gonna have to tell me about the. Tr- there's this something here though about like question about what a tradition is so it's 
it's it has all these like very cool little narratives that could happen on any Christmas and like walking down the street like a hippo is probably not a family tradition. Right. But yeah. um I mean I hope so. It sounds great. Yeah. But the the idea of like how a tradition gets imparted, what's a what how how it operates as a sort of like temporal touchstone. Like my in-laws for apparently 30 years made uh, ham on Christmas, and I think ham is gross and <laughs> disgusting. And some year, my husband and I were we did a little. We went to a, like a cabin in Michigan for Christmas. It was great, and uh, we there were only two of us, and that was dumb for making a prime rib. And then Aaron said, like, "Oh, we had prime rib. It was delicious." And his parents just like completely changed, and now they do prime rib. And I was like, <laughs> "That's." Yeah wild that you can just like change your tradition but of course you fucking can you know like of course you can why not it's not it's not there's no law but this is i i don't know this seems like and even the listening to it or watching the thing is a tradition right so it's like underscoring how those get made yeah no absolutely absolutely and like yeah so the way that that works nicely in tension with the specific vignettes like even if the cats shit happened a bunch of years and they all did the musical on the wall or whatever else mm-hmm. um mr daniel like you- looks like a spaniel is a tradition we do every year <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh making fun of grown-ups like yeah. all of these specific things and then the then we're like back at this general frame or whatever and he like turns the light off at the end to like tell us that we're at the end of the narrative connecting yeah. us to it more you know like yeah. it becomes yeah. a christmas bed story that way nicely well yeah i don't have anything big to make of it but i also just think like the actual anywhere we don't get a lot of like specific every year we like well every year aunt hannah got drunk is like not a tradition (laughs) but it's but it also is yeah totally it is though right like i think that's right even though like we know they have turkey right like that's a thing but he's he's like put he's doing tradition in a way that's also like punctuated by these funnier scenes right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. we know the house catching fire is not a tradition but right. <laughs> yes they don't do the butt on fire every christmas over there <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but uh, but it right but i think it does it it becomes part of just like the adult memory of like what christmas like right you know i mean so it's like yeah i mean i think the part of like what bleeds into nostalgia i mean some of it is this you know like a recurrent thing i mean usually nostalgia is like well i mean that's the other it's like to partially i think to what what you were saying megan about tradition it made me think is that like nostalgia is always invented right because like mm-hmm. it doesn't it doesn't reflect what the past actually was which was of course very fraught as is the present full of a lot of fucked up shit as is the present like uh, a lot of moments where you weren't happy and you know great it's like not actually actually cute that aunt hannah is drunk right now you know like but but like the adult memory kind of produces that and tradition itself is produced kind of like sort of i think this is what you sort of were were getting at after the fact and like in this narrative of what it is that we did um and and i think that like it is like it's appreciative of that and it finds like comfort in that and and i do want to say like some of the scenes i was pointing out is kind of more troubling like for instance like the two the two homeric figures that disappear into the uh or joycean figures maybe that disappear into the sea like i mean i'm sure some of our listeners be like wait but that kid's imaginations do wild shit and kids like freak themselves out and and then that's kind of cool and that's part of like you know th- that's that's part of the a, a lot of people's fond memories of childhood when like the 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 imagination had this uh this kind of 
felt capacity to do all these like interesting things with reality. You you know what I mean? So like, I I think that like, I think the nostalgia and like that, that kind of memory is largely sort of celebratory in this, but I do think that it's like, I think it's troubled and I don't think that it just lets us think of it in only that way without raising some, I think, important questions around the margins about how it intersects with something that is closer to like the real or something like that. Right. Cause no, I mean like, and I think that that is where the ass on fire thing is like, because the memories of something that is overdetermined, like Christmas mm-hmm. is going to have both like every year is going to have some tradition woven in with some like fucked up particularity. Mm-hmm. And you remember those differently or at cross points to each other right because i was just i think i always think of my in-laws because this is where i've had like actual christmas where nobody's like screaming at each other uh right (laughs) and so whenever that was like prime rib number one and i had some like terrible flu that i got like when i got to washington and uh uh, made me what's referred to in his particular vernacular as a theratotty, which is um, theraflu <laughs> and Canadian whiskey. Uh-huh. And I slept for 18 hours. Right, right. And that's like, I'd rather that or not a tradition. I'd rather not be like a death store and like drugged yeah. for days. Right. But that's like a Christmas thing now, I guess. Well, right. And it's, I mean, it's also, it's a funny story. And it's like, it's the kind of thing that like, at the time, I'm sure sucked, but like, but has like, a, you know, but it's, it, but memory makes it something else, right? Something yes. other than the, the, the immediate experience of it. Right. I don't remember every time I've ever had the flu. Right. (laughs) I mean, I only remember when it's been serious, like I when I my first year of graduate school and I had to write somebody that I was missing a PhD seminar, I thought they'd be mad because I couldn't get off the couch. Yeah. (laughs) Oh man. I remember I when I was a reporter in New Jersey, I had food poisoning so bad. I still remember it's like I thought I was gonna die. Like I the guy (laughs) where you just like where you wake up on the on the the floor and like I have no idea how I got there. Um and that but and it's like that's not a fond memory, but it's a funny story now. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, no, I think like so part of the reason why I mean, I'm assuming that that the the butt on fire family like that also is possibly a funny story, but possibly not a fun like possibly a funny story for a kid to walk in on, and not a funny story for them about the time the firefighters like like, fucked their entire house up trying to put out their dad's ass or whatever. Like dad went to sleep because he had had a few (laughs) too many ports with his cigar or pipe. The house caught on fire, and then firemen blasted a fire hose into your living room that in the middle of winter. That kind of sounds like it sucks. But everybody's offered something nice to read, and that really (laughs) is where the story should end. Yeah, yeah, that right. Which I mean, okay, if you were some little kid who likes fires, yeah. (laughs) If you were if you were standing in that living room when (laughs) the ad appeared and said that, I think that you would be like, "What the fuck?" (laughs) But. As nostalgia, as memory, it's like, oh, what a what a character she was. You know what I mean? Like, so. Right, especially because we get like the genre that is ants, and they're so like <laughs> I don't even know. I'm trying to figure out what the word is that I'm looking for about ants. Oddball? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Eccentrics, yeah, sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas um, uncles just 
seem to you know be overeating and kind of taciturn i think right? yeah just sort of like falling into chairs yeah and getting mad when you pop balloons Oh right! <laughs> that, that was the, that, no, forget the kid who likes fires. It's sicker to what the other thing Dylan Thomas describes himself doing. I think is blowing up balloons so big they pop. That yeah. is real sicko shit. Yeah, yes. yeah, I agree. I, I yes, I'm I'm also sensitive to the sudden bags like that. And yeah, that that that's the kind of shit that I, I don't I take that to be a funny joke. That that pisses me off real bad. I'm sensitive to being a to being roused from a stupor. Yeah, yeah. The part of the coming out of my food coma. <laughs> oh man! So what? What else do we want to? Talk? We want to talk a little bit more about indoor outdoor spaces. Is that the other thing we wanted to get to? So I didn't have a whole lot on this, but one thing that I found particularly interesting reading through was just that we're in a magical world of animals, except not ones that dress you or like do fun little <laughs> tours for you yeah. or sing songs and musicals. We have like these cats who that are, I guess like lynxes or something like <laughs> that they're, I mean, if we can, tr- if we can trust that, uh, yeah. but they seem to be like wild cats of some sort. Yeah. And then he also makes oh, reference to- I don't to- think they are. I think yeah. they're just regular old kitty cats and that they're, that Jim and he yeah. take them to be like, you know, because we're out there in the, they're doing yeah. um, call the wild hours. Like we said, okay. po- polar cat. It's like someone had a white house cat. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like so. <laughs> They've done. Okay. Cause, cause the reason I think, um, aside from just me being a dumbass, the reason why I was like sort of drawn to that. That was because he talks about when there used to be wolves and whales and like there aren't anymore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so it seemed like a way of, I don't know, we get some of these details, these indoor details, like the gas meter, like he's paying a lot of attention to the gas meter and he's paying a lot of attention to the food and the presence. And then we get outside and we get these very particular interactions with people, even if they're not even if they're sort of like undetermined, they're they're particular and memorable. But then the stuff with the animals is like, I don't know. The cats thing was just, I, I just I can't get the fucking cats. Th- yeah. Throwing snowballs, well, cats just like it, I I just was trying to wrap my mind around that for the entirety of the rest of the tale. So yeah, I mean um, I think it's fun. the kind, the kind of psychopathy that has often been indulged in uh, young boys, right? That it's just like, oh, boys be boys. I'm like, no, this is animal abuse, which is uh, not not great, you know. <laughs> but uh, but no, I like. So I think like when you talk about the, the, the kind of reference to the wolves and stuff like that, then we have that like completely outlandish the hippopotamuses like trudging through the snow. Um, I mean, one thing like the like one thing thing uh, function of the toggling between indoor outdoor like it, it does go back to the epic. Um, and Megan, I, I'm thanks for I'm surprised I didn't think Ulysses like Joyce's Ulysses as I was reading this, but at, like I am okay. Ulysses also takes place over one day, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's another you know the kind of like return to Ithaca versus going like out, but like all constantly out back into or sent back out into the kind of world. Um, and, and like the vignette is the way the epic works too. Like, I mean, a lot, a lot mm-hmm. of the, if you think of the, a lot of the episodes in both Ulysses and like the Odyssey, there's not a ton of connection between they, they, they do kind of stand on their own as independent stories. Right. So I think like just spatially, that might be one thing that's happening, just kind of like demarcating like another sort of epic moment in, in this sequence. I mean, and that like, this is off the wall and weird, but like, I feel like 
this isn't mentioned, but I gotta think that they're they they're outside because they keep getting thrown out. Like, get the <laughs> yeah, fuck yeah. out of my house, you little shits! Yeah, like yeah, that yeah. just seems <laughs> yeah. like something I would say yeah. to the kids with their snowballs. Yeah, you know, and Stephen's constantly getting bounced out of bars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's true in the in the Odyssey too. He's constantly getting like thrown out of you know. He's trying yeah. to kill something, and they're like, just fuck off. Yeah. Yeah, we're bouncing from thing to thing. And I think, I guess that's another part of it too, is that in the bouncing from thing to thing, in, in this, we're bouncing from thing to thing, not because like we're trying to get somewhere or whatever. It's just because like we're looking for shit to do. And so the. Because they, they can't go see Die Hard on Christmas Day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they cannot. It'll be some years before they can do that. So yeah, it's like they're looking for. I really thought the cats were more mythical than they are, so it sort of uh, fucks me up a little bit. But th- the reason why they're fucking with them and doing like the hippo, the hippo shit seems like pure joking around boredom. They're not looking to play in the woods or play outside necessarily. They're looking for something exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and it's a di- it's a different thing to wander around looking for something exciting than to like. Than to explore the countryside, traversing for wildlife or whatever the fuck. Yeah, that's why I think t- they just got th- they just got tossed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, right. Yeah, and, and right, and I mean, yeah, that that like they're 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 creating their own sort of epic, like the capacity of like children's imagination and in our memory, because I think we, you know, adults tend to idealize this in a way that it's like not actually all that <laughs> great as a child uh, to you know to necessarily have to have recourse to this, right? But yeah, I mean it's a world that like is often quite boring uh or you know don't want to hang out with this fucking house full you know getting thrown out all the time so when you go out right like yeah you do you create these epic seeds in your head to like kind of be the the setter of and the hero of right like um because tristan how would we feel if our kids were in an apartment blowing up balloons just to see just to watch them explode and uh also like one of the ants has been scared twice by a wind-up mouse. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the wind-up mouse. Like, they're just being obnoxious. Yeah. I mean, I think Eddie would, who has been the parent of a child of any age during the pandemic, <laughs> knows exactly what you're talking about. And I think just generally, every, every you know, like people are very sick of, like, being in the same space day after day after day with a... With a but, but as a kid, I mean, particularly the holiday time, like, that's your... That's your experience, and as an adult too, right? It's yeah. like, look, I'm trying to get this like massive, elaborate fucking feast on the table because this is what we've decided we do. You are like throwing marbles across the floor that I'm about <laughs> to slip on. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get the fuck out! And I think it's like good. Like I'm that god. I get to fucking go out and play for a little while, you know. But. I, I will cede this this territory to you too because the one of the one of the last times I had an interaction with a kid who was outside of my family, I was so confused. This little boy ran up to me and asked for candy, and I offered. <laughs> I said, "I don't have candy, but I have some sugar packets and sweet and low." <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's you're the crazy. you're the worst. There, a child asks you for candy, which is already violating rule number one. Yeah. <laughs> Sugar packets and, and you're like, love. I'll give you something worse. <laughs> I offered it in front of his parents. So. <laughs> Did his parents laugh or were they like, come away, child? <laughs> it was extracted from my presence, mostly because of my 
<laughs> my general affect and demeanor around children. <laughs> well, some children are wonderful and some children are jerks because they're just people and that's yes, my yeah. general that's that's my kid take. Exactly. <laughs> this was a perfectly nice child and I think he would have loved some sweet and low and hopefully will in the future when he's old enough for it. <laughs> well that like that's a weird like this is like a weird thing that I was thinking of. But one of the things that makes the vignettes function as they do, as both sort of like particularized and generalized, is that they're he this is a this is very much a poet thing, which is like very grounded in sense language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. so the one that stands out to me, there's actually a bunch, right? Like he talks about how things taste. He talks about the cold, how they had um, socks o- over their hands. Yes. Um, but the one that stands out to me is that the ants give them like wool hats, uh-huh. yeah. and that they've only worn yeah. wool up against their skin, so yeah. it's like <laughs> turned them into like Brillo pads. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, he says that they marvel that ants have skin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, because they wear yeah. they wear this shit like that they that they would be like skinless beings. Yeah, and I also thought too that there is even like kind of a like a sort of nun reference to or like hair shirt kind of wearing type thing there maybe you know but uh, yeah there's well in the sense memory too right that like I mean from a purely kind of prose like sort of like fiction style that uh, there's. I don't know. It's like uh, that that memory of plunging your hand in and pulling out memories that that looks uh, like weird or not part of the genre in a way that to a poet, it's like, yeah, fuck yeah, that's how sense works, right? Like, I mean, right. so, you know, it, th- there's not this hard blind between like factual memory versus like sense memory and that kind of thing, you know? But. Yeah. And sensation, again, is just like such a poetic tech. It's like poetry analysis 101 right it's yeah. like the sen- the sense techniques yeah exactly exactly but it is what makes it feel particular in yeah. some, when those memories sort of like are which we all also take to be generalized also sort of seem cl- like they have a particular kind of clarity mm-hmm. yeah and i mean that and i think that, that that is a that that is one of the almost kind of trans historical like conceits of poetry right is like the simultaneous like like universality and particularity right that that, mm-hmm. that, that there's that you have to hold those two possibilities in your head all the time for for a lot of poetry to function right like that's that is kind of what it that's what it, and not exclusively I mean, of course there's poetry that doesn't fall into this at all but i think that that is like a long-standing sort of like poetic concept and, and device for sure and we can assume it's universal that seven-year-old shitheads are making extremely loud noises. <laughs> yes, of course. Of course. <laughs> there have been me- mechanisms for making very loud, annoying noises for thousands of years. Yep, there have been. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> well, okay. Katie, do you have a game for us? I have a game for you. If you can answer these riddles three, which are the game. <laughs> <laughs> it's Christmas riddles. We're doing Christmas riddles. Are we doing Christmas dirty limericks next week? Yeah, yes, <laughs> now we are. <laughs> uh, these are Christmas riddles for grown-ups, of course, from Thought Catalog, where all the thoughts are. If you want to know where all the thoughts are online, they've cataloged them helpfully for you on Thought Catalog. And God bless them, everyone, as Tiny Tim would say. <laughs> Um, and these were uh, the I didn't just grab any from Thought Catalog. This particular article was tagged both funny and LOL. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, LOL. Okay. Turn your expectations up to eleven. 
Okay. Here, here they are. So what do you get if you deep fry Santa Claus? If you plunge Santa Claus screaming into the deep fryer, mm-hmm. what do you get? Going medieval on Santa Claus's ass. Okay. Um <laughs> And this is a this is a funny answer, right? Yes, because it's a it's riddle. A, it, it's, yes, and it's it's not. This one's not dirty. The rest of them are. Okay. okay. Well, I would um, just. I'll give you a, like sorry. a hint. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Think of other names for Santa. Oh, Chris Kringle. No, Crisp Kringle. Yeah. Crisp Kringle. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I. Because I was, I just, but I have to say, see, here's my, the, my, the dad in me uh, taking over. Uh, I know deep fried turkey accidents, people fro- pro- plunging a frozen people die thing. All the time. Yeah, and set their yeah. decks on fire. You don't want to, pl- you have to thaw Santa out before you plunge him <laughs> into the deep fire or it'll explode. So just, you know, ma- make sure you're safe as you're making your crisp Kringle. Oh my God, I want to die. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You know, I actually get in a lot of trouble in my apartment because um, riddles are a big part of second grade pedagogy, and I will occasionally yell out the answer, involuntarily, I swear to God. (laughs) But this this morning, there was a question lobbed to the second graders that went something like, what can you catch but not throw? And I said, a cold! And I got in trouble. (laughs) Because you're not supposed to say it out loud. Yeah, yeah, that's. Uh, I, I wouldn't have gotten it. <laughs> I wouldn't I have gotten go it either. To, go back to second grade. Yeah. I mean, I think I, you know, I, I have a lot of practice because I um, violate the terms of second grade a lot. <laughs> well, <laughs> don't don't we all? Don't we all? But but to segue to riddle number two tristan you brought up safety mm-hmm. well here's another here's a safety riddle how does santa stay sti free how does santa stay sti free uh i'm happy to give hints no let us try this troll ain't letting you oh across the, <laughs> the uh the pro- the, well, the Protestant work ethic, man, he's got to make all those billions of toys and he's only got 364 t- days to do it. So who's got who, who's got time for, you know, <laughs> True. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know, Megan, do you have an idea here? I'm really trying something about candy canes, something about abstinence. Uh, condoms are always are definitely going to be in here. Katie, give us a hint. Or you're getting warmer on the condoms yeah. and other things that you get at Christmas. Stockings. Con- you put stockings on your wiener, and that's how you don't get a stickies. <laughs> a red hot chili pepper Christmas. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> Sorry, that took me a second. I can't believe it took me a second. Yep. So, so you get you get gifts, or sometimes they come in the mail. Sometimes. Oh, packages! You wrap, you wrap your package uh-huh. uh, before he does what? What does Santa do? Going down the chimney. He always wraps his package before coming down the chimney. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not doing very well on my usual terms of yelling out the answers. I have to say, you really got there because <laughs> that yeah. was a hard one. Yeah. This is the hardest. This is the hardest one of all, 
And uh, what I'll say is this. You'll no, I'm going to do Megan. I'll I'm going to go with no hints, but I'll give you a hint whenever whenever you want one. Why was the snowman smiling? This is very difficult. <laughs> Why was the snowman, the snowman smiling? smiling? Well, let's think. Let, let's think. Uh well, the, the the carrot is kind of a phallic object, right? Maybe something like uh, <laughs> uh but I'm yeah. I but I don't snowman. I don't know where to go with that. <laughs> um Think about snow removal. Oh, okay. Shovel hoe, shovels. Plows. Salt. Devices to remove snow. Uh, Not plows. (laughs) Shovels? No. It's somewhere between a plow, somewhere between a shovel. Oh, blower. I, okay. Yeah. Because he just got snow blown, right? Snow blown, yeah. Yeah. See the snow blower coming down the street. Oh, mm-hmm. the snow. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Thought catalog. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. This was hashtagged both funny and LOL. Yeah. And um, I, I don't know that it lives up to the hashtags, but. Now, here's my most important question Does this website permit comment sections? <laughs> you know, I didn't venture into it because I didn't have eight to nine hours that I needed um, <laughs> and would have liked to devote to that. But I'll see if I can leave. I love to leave feedback anywhere I can. So. Well, I'm mostly interested in what the other um, comic geniuses of the internet would like to give as notes to these hilarious riddles. Yeah, which would range well, from funny to deeply disturbing, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. As, I'm sure as there's as somebody who says, put a candy cane in your butthole and sit on it. <laughs> Man, offered his earnest advice, not even, you know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Try it. It's yeah. not fun. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Were you with us Minty. for the Cosmo sex quiz? Yeah. Well, it's got to melt at some point, right? Yeah. yeah but mid- I, I, sure. <laughs> yeah, you get just a, just mentally. I can't even mentally, yeah. It doesn't it's not don't, uh, I don't I don't I don't love it. <laughs> no. My not my greatest suggestion, or you're surely not implying that. No, no, it's not it's not, but it's not the it's not the worst thing I've ever heard. <laughs> it's really not. Anyway. Well, this has been Better Ed Than Dead. You can find Tristan on Twitter at DJ Schweiger. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie Crywo. You can find me on Twitter at Tesslersaurus. You can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Better Ed Pod and email us at betteredpodcast at gmail.com. But only if you want to tell us a story about hitting cats with snowballs so we can tell you to fuck off. <laughs> yes, indeed. You sadistic piece of trash. Um, our intro music is Slap Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo is created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Please rate, review, subscribe. We still have stickers. They're very cool. And next week, we have one more Christmas special with Truman Capote's A Christmas Memory. And we are finishing up season three with The Wild Irish Girl and Absalom Absalom after that. Thanks, comrades. I know the place to go How'd you like to spend Christmas On Christmas Island 
How'd you like to spend the holiday away across the sea? How'd you like to spend Christmas on Christmas Island? How'd you like to hang your stocking on a great big coconut tree? How'd you like to stay?